You are listening to Portland Radio Project 99.1 FM on your dial and streaming worldwide on our site, prp.fm. I am Jenna D, and you can catch me as the host of Theme for a Tuesday, which airs, well, Tuesdays, 8 to 10 a.m. And as some of you may know, we like to give a voice to local artists playing one every 15 minutes on the air. And occasionally we like to hear how these artists are doing, what they're working on, and hear their own personal stories. And believe you me, the band I have with me today is full of stories. They are the Minidoka Swing Band, formed in 2007 to remember the music and big bands that were popular inside World War II Japanese-American internment camps. It was music that would make life more normal for the imprisoned internees. Please give a warm welcome to band leader and clarinet slash alto sax player, Larry Nabori. Hi, Larry. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> Good, thanks. Vocalist, Nola Sugai Bogle. Hi, Nola. Hi there. And guitarist, Doug Katagiri. Hi. Welcome, all of you, and thank you so much for joining me today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there are about 19 of you in total as a group? The band consists of four saxophones, four trombones, four trumpets, four rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, and guitar, two vocalists, Nola and Andy, and that's a total of 18. And we have a manager, Laura Baxter, who makes 19. So I know that you all still practice regularly, but um, how has COVID changed things? Well, we were not playing for about a year and a half as a result of COVID. And uh, when we all got our shots, we were pretty much allowed to rehearse again. And so we rehearsed at the Oregon Buddhist Temple and um, the Usuria family has helped us get the um, use of the building for practice. And we spread ourselves six feet apart and use the whole area so that we don't practice close together. So the band was founded 14 years ago now in 2007. Um, what inspired its creation and how did each of you get involved in the band? Um, well, the, the idea of the Mini Doka Swing Band started in about 2007. And it was originally a youth band. And the purpose of it was to introduce youth to the idea of internment camps, in particular, Minidoka. We did a pilgrimage to Minidoka in 2008, and um, we brought in a group of dancers with the band and uh, with the idea of performing in Minidoka for the pilgrimage. And as a result, we were well-received. In fact, in the audience, um, when we were performing at one of the hotels, was a man from the Wall Street Journal, Joe Millman, and he later on interviewed us and put us in the front page of the Wall Street Journal as a result. Part of the history of the band was a, a vocalist called Shig Sakamoto, who was our interpreter, my kind of, of, of internment. He was a a teenager at the time of internment, and he was also our lead vocalist at the time. The idea of internment music in internment camps was brought on by a book by George Ishida called Reminiscing in Swing Time, and he inspired us to present the band as part of the internment process. Nola and Doug, how did, how did you get involved with the band? The Minidoka visit is, was part of, there's an annual pilgrimage to Minidoka, and this was 
for that particular year, there was a woman at the time named Robbie Tsuboy who was very active in youth activities. And she thought that, uh, you know, having some of the kids who had band experience form a swing band and some of the kids who maybe didn't play instruments form a dance group, that it would be sort of a, a good way or a, a novel way and maybe a fun way for them to kind of approach the internment as part of that pilgrimage, which as I said, is, is an annual thing. So every year they're trying to think of different things to do to bring out more of the history. And in this case, it was trying to get the youth engaged in these activities. And Nola, how about you? Well, let me see. I came to the band in 2008. Uh, Robbie had enlisted the uh, aid of a group of young singers who uh, were trying to carry on the tradition, but then they grew older and graduated and left the band. So she called on one of the older people. You were in Minidoka though. Yes, yes I was. And uh, she asked me if I would be interested in uh, joining the band. Well, I had never sung with the band. I'd done a lot of work singing in the past, but with trios and quartets and things like that. I'd never sung with a big band, so it was a brand new experience for me. And uh, I have absolutely adored being part of the band. That's that's amazing to hear. So I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive into your personal connections to the music. But first, why don't we play one of your tracks? Um, it's called I've Got You Under My Skin. It's originally a Cole Porter tune. And Nola, this is your son singing, right? The genes of being a ham. That line's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> that line is a keeper, I believe you. So um, what inspired you overall to add this song to the repertoire? Uh, Larry, if you don't mind taking this one. Well, Andy, Andy's uh, voice is a Sinatra-style voice. And the band arrangement is, I think, really good. And so I think I, I think that's one of the better ones on the from the album Nihon Machi. All right, here is the Minidoka Swing Band with I've Got You Under My Skin with vocals by Andy Strike here on Portland Radio Project. I've got you under my skin I've got you deep in the heart of me so deep in my heart that you're really a part of me I've got you under my skin I've tried so not to give in I've said to myself this affair it never will go so well but why should I try to resist when baby I know so well I've got you under my skin 
sacrifice anything, come what might, for the sake of having you near, in spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats, repeats in my ear. Don't you know, little fool, you never can win? Use your mentality, wake up to reality. But each time I do, just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin. Cause I've got you under my skin. Before I begin, cause I've got you under my skin. Cause I've got you under my skin. And I like you under my skin. I've Got You Under My Skin, performed by the Minidoka Swing Band here on Portland Radio Project. I am your host, Jenna D, and I actually have three of the band's members connecting remotely here with me today. We have Nola, we have Doug, and Larry. We have mentioned that you specifically play music that was popular in the World War II era, and it was also music heard inside the Japanese-American internment camps. Um, Nola and Larry, as I understand, you were both interned as young children. Do you have any memories of your experiences? First of all, I was born in Sacramento, California. And so I was just a baby. I was, my mother had me in Sacramento and then we were interned a month later because of the fact that I was just a baby. <laughs> we were sent to um, Fresno for holding a place before being sent to Jerome, Arkansas, where I was interned. My dad had a camera, took a 15-minute video of our being in camp, and that is my only recollection of being in camp uh, and actually seeing it on the video. So I have no real recollection of being there. We were relocated to Cleveland, Ohio. I remember some of that, but some of that transitional stuff, being on the train and all that. Not much memory of details. Could you describe? Uh, could you describe the video for us, perhaps? Yeah, it's basically my family and friends in the in the camp. What it was like. Uh, I was in a baby carriage. My mom was a young lady, and she was, you know, having me and wheeling me around because, you know, childcare and all that was not available. And she had to do very difficult things under the circumstances. 
Nola, how about you? What do you remember? My situation was a little different than most. My father was Japanese American. My mother was Chinese American and uh, they married. Then the war broke out and we were all sent uh, to Minidoka. My dad was born in Salem. My mother was born in Beaverton. And my grandparents were living in Gaston at the time. So we were all in the exclusion area. We were sent to Minidoka. I was three at the time. I remember little snippets. Uh, I remember in the summertime walking out and all there was was dust. It was alkali dust and I would sink up to my ankles in this fine, fine dust. In the wintertime or rainy season, all that dust turned to just an absolute sea of mud. I remember seeing scrolls of what we called flypaper at the time, hanging from all the rafters of the mess area where we were eating, just black, covered black with flies. I remember dust coming through the, the walls because the accommodations were not very well built. I remember a lot of things like that. It was very, very tough living in that kind of a situation. Uh, we did not have mattresses. We had bags of gray canvas-like things that we had to fill with hay in order to put it on these metal beds that we were given to sleep on. No other furniture was given to us except a pot-bellied stove in each unit. And uh, we used coal that we'd scavenge from the railroad tracks in order to heat. The fact that you can recollect that much from being that young of an age is immeasurably impressive to me. Plus, it's just such vivid detail and the fact that you remember that. It's, it, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Doug, your parents and grandparents were also interned. How did their experiences compare to Nola and Larry's? I've heard bits and pieces of granular detail recounted by uh, Nola just now. That's fairly consistent. My dad was a sophomore in high school in 1942 when uh, his family was sent to Tule Lake. We're not sure why. That was not the local camp for the Portland area. He's from Portland. They were sent to Tule Lake, and this was before it became a, a camp for the No-No Boys. This was in the early days of that. And he was only there for a few months. He was determined that he not graduate from a camp high school. He had a couple of older sisters who had settled in, in the Midwest, so he ended up in Minneapolis. Nola mentioned the exclusion zone, and the one of the features of, of that situation was that there was a, a strip that went from the Pacific coast to approximately, and I'm all parking it here, maybe 150 miles or so, it was irregular, all the way down from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. And if you lived in that zone, then you had to move. Initially, they hadn't thought this out very well. They were just hoping the, the, the Nikkei would simply move inland to other communities. But the other communities uh, heard about this, and there were a lot of 
people in those communities who didn't want uh, waves of, of Japanese moving into there. I'm guessing these are primarily white small towns in the sort of inner Pacific coast area. You know how it is. It's probably half the people are that way, and those half of the people are still around. We're still, you know, as a country, we're still trying to to reconcile the two different types of, of human beings. But anyway, so they came up with the idea of the camps. Well, okay, we'll put these guys in camps. A lot of people did move. And, for example, my mother, who was slightly older than my dad, she was in college, she attended, uh, she enrolled in a college in, in Minneapolis. And, in fact, years later, that's how they met. But my dad, because of his sister, moved to Minneapolis from the camp and finished high school. He wasn't there for very long. Eventually, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, moved from um, Tule Lake to Amachi. Thule Lake became sort of a Justice Department camp for uh, the people who were protesting the uh, internment. And how do you think, this is a question to all three of you, uh, we'll start with Larry and then move forward. How do you think these experiences of your family or of yourself influenced who you are today? You know, for a long time I was in denial. I was. I grew up in the Bay Area and um, kind of, you know, when you come back from the war and you're kind of looked at as uh, a different kind of person. You look different. You didn't want to identify with that process, for me anyway. And I grew up in a very good environment, actually. I had didn't experience too much racial, racist uh, environment uh, at school or, or anywhere else. I had uh, a pretty good experience in that way. But it was hard to, to be yourself in your Japanese community, being a Buddhist and being different and all of that made it very difficult. So it was hard. As I got older, I realized that this was uh, something of my past, but I was still in pretty much denial, even though my family was um, in kind of denial. All of us were actually for a long time. Once I got involved with the band, I started realizing what really happened and it took me that long to know what really happened during this time. And it was, in, in a way, shameful and um, depressing. I began to realize who I was in the process of doing the Minidoka band and getting in touch with people in Minidoka and in the Portland and Northwest Japanese community. And so it was a, a, a slow process from learning more and more detail about what happened to my family and other people that experience internment. Nola, how about you? I think it affected me pretty greatly. After the war was over and we were excused from internment, uh, my family had been sent up to uh, Spokane, Washington to help this farmer gather in his crops. After we were finished there, we moved to Ontario, Oregon, and uh, it seemed like a lot of the Japanese men and the families just did a good job of farming. Anyway, um, my dad was not a farmer, nor was my, my mother grew up on a farm, as did my dad, but neither of them wanted to go on with that sort of work, which most of the Japanese people who moved there did. My dad and mother opened a restaurant 
they felt that the Japanese people who moved there didn't have any place to go. And I have to use this word that I have hated all my life. All of the restaurants had signs that said, no Japs allowed. I hate that word to this day. It just rankles me. But that's what we were, we had to put up with. Nobody wanted us around. They didn't want our business. And so mom and dad opened up a restaurant so that the Japanese people had someplace to go. There was a time after they opened the restaurant that some of the purveyors of like chickens in Ontario wouldn't sell dressed chickens to my parents for their restaurant. So one day my, I came home and we had a whole bunch of crates and chickens out in the backyard clucking around. And so we fed them, fattened them up, and I learned how to kill a chicken. <laughs> and I can do it this day. I still remember <laughs> how. Some things you can never unlearn, huh? No, you can't. You can't. But anyway, it, it taught me a lot in that I knew that there were things that you have to do and things that you can shield yourself from. Most of it was learning how to live with other people. We were told to keep our heads down and not bring any attention to ourselves. And I think a lot of other people did too. Doug, how do you think that the experiences of your pretty close relatives has influenced you? It may have given me a suspicion of the government or authority in general. Now, I realize I'm being very glib in saying that. I, I, I also have to explain that I'm part of, I'm a baby boomer, so I think that probably is a birthright of baby boomers who grew up during the 60s and uh, questioning authority and demonstrating and everything that we did. It certainly dovetailed with that. You know, the, the U.S. Constitution is a, a beautiful document with very high-sounding language and some great laws. And it just took a few months for that back in 1941-42 to be just completely trampled upon and ignored by a few very determined people. It can happen then so easily, so quickly. There's no telling what could happen at any time. There's a line in a poem by W.B. William Butler Yeats that says, uh, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. And that seems to be often the case. And it's this passionate intensity among a very small number of people that can upset everything. I think that you will find if you talk to a lot of Japanese people after the war was over and we were let go to go back to our places to live, no one talked about being interned. It was like it, it was a taboo subject. The first generation and the second generation didn't want to bring it up. And so it was never talked about in all kinds of families. It was just a a taboo subject. My dad was always very, very, he was talking about that before I even understood that I was Japanese. I mean, this was something that he was very passionate about from, from the get-go. Maybe it was just his personality, but it may have informed a lot of what he did throughout his adult life, getting involved in uh, uh, Japanese community activities, uh, organizing 
educational programs about the, the internment and the, the assembly center and all kinds of things. Being one of the founders of the Oregon Nikkei uh, endowment that was uh, responsible for eventually, or partially responsible for eventually, the, the building, the construction of the Japanese American Historical Plaza, the Oregon Nikkei Legacy Center, which has evolved into the Japanese American uh, Museum of Oregon. So he was he was always very it was very much in the front of his um, of his attention and he he didn't shy away from talking about it. Um, you brought up the Japanese American Museum of Oregon, and I do want to touch on that. But first, um, I want to play a little more of your music. It's one that Larry, um, you specifically requested. It's titled Tokyo Boogie Woogie um, slash Nihon Machi. What can you tell our listeners about like this specific composition? It's a combination of two forms. Um, we premiered this piece um, at the 7th, 75th anniversary of a day of remembrance and the governor was there and Senator Ron Wyden was there and um, it was a show uh, redoing the path to internment and what the poetry is about by Lawson Enon, a former poet laureate of Oregon, wrote was a kind of a promenade or walk through of old Japantown. It's presented in the music context of the Boogie Woogie, Tokyo Boogie Woogie, which was a popular swing tune in World War II in Japan. We superimposed the music with the poetry and then in the background were these people that were in reenacting internment with suitcases and numbers that were given to each person that had to be in intern, etc. So it was quite a show. And we used the recording and the name of the CD, Nihon Machi, to kind of present this idea of, of the music and the poetry and the promenade walking through old Japantown. In the recording itself, there's a part that Lawson says, I better go now, I better go. And there's a train whistle in the background indicating that it was time to get onto the train. And that was the end of the poetry and the music. I am excited for our listeners to hear it. Here is the Minidoka Swing Band with Tokyo Boogie Woogie Nihon Machi here on Portland Radio Project. Come along with me to Portland's Nihon Machi, our sizable and thriving Japan town by the river that has truly blossomed since days of immigration. Now, thanks to the energy of enterprising generations, Nihon Machi has become an appealing destination for anyone to just visit, or to dine, shop, or to have personal needs met by our community services. Yes, Nihon Machi beckons. Come along with me. Ah, here we are. Sasaki Store. Namba Barbershop. Hey, Jim, I'll be in tomorrow. Yumiba Laundry. Mama's Cafe. Tomori Cleaners. Amy, hey, how was that at Hood River? Nakata Hotel. Matsuba Barbershop. Oshu Nippo Newspaper. George, great coverage on the city doings. Obukan Judo Hall. West Coast Orient Store. 
Takagi Laundry, Mikado Auto Repair, Long Time No See Fumio, Nita Hotel, Sata Cleaners, Ohashi Beauty Salon, Kokusai Insurance, Oi Ted, did you catch anything? Dr. Kayama, DDS, Dr. Tanaka, MD, Matsuba Beauty Salon, Kongo Church, Fugetsu Confectionery, Kimi, I'll pick up my manju later, Fujiyama Restaurant, Sakano Jewelry, Teraji Hotel, Dr. Oyamada, DDS, Matsuura Cleaners, Dr. Koyama, DDS, Sugikawa Restaurant, Bob, what's the special today? Kiyohiro Laundry and Bath, Tanaka Grocery, Okazaki Auto Repair, Mary's Cafe, Somekawa Store, Shig, great comeback win, Hinoda Restaurant, Yoshihawa Restaurant, Sato Barbershop, Tokyo Sukiyaki, Kostosha News and Books, Sumi, did that book come in? Yotogawa Restaurant, Takeuchi Barbershop, Koga Tofu Company, Tajima Confectionery, Star Fish Market, Tom, how'd it go in Astoria? Nikko Restaurant, Itami Pool Hall, Shoda Barbershop, Itami Auto Garage, Usuda Store. Alice, congratulations on your degree. Namba Pharmacy. Matsui Music Store. Sounds like Duke Ellington. Nomura Pharmacy. Dr. Shiomi, MD. Dr. Hirata, DDS. Takagi Photo Studio. Tsuboi. Jewelry. Hey Gary, great window display. What? What did you say? Instructions? Instructions for what? What for? Are you kidding me? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I better go. I'd better go. Come along with me. Come along with me. Come along with me. All right, that was Tokyo Boogie Woogie Nihon Machi, performed by the Minidoka Swing Band here on Portland Radio Project. I am Jenna D, and I'm here with Nola Sugai Bogle, Doug Katagiri, and Larry Nabori, all members of the band. The title of the track we just heard, or part of it, Nihon Machi, it basically translates to Japantown. And I know I personally did not realize Portland had a Japantown. What can any of you tell us about Portland's Nihon Machi? Uh, it was about five, four, five, six square blocks. 
roughly from Westburn side to about mm, Flanders, Gleason, and maybe from First Avenue to Fifth or Sixth. You're, you can be forgiven for not uh, knowing anything about it. That area is heavily gentrified and has been for a number of years. There was also a second uh, Nihon Machi that was on the southwest side of town, very, again, very close to what is now kind of the municipal center of the town. And this would be between roughly Market and Alder and between maybe 3rd Avenue to what was then Front Street, which is now uh, Naito Parkway. And they, it was an area that had a lot of Japanese businesses. It, it kind of evolved. It, it started in the, the 20s, and it wasn't just Japanese. They had a lot of services and, and short-term hotels and cleaning services and so forth that, that, that uh, catered to transient workers, people who worked in, and, and uh, I guess, in the lumber industry. And, um, you know, there was a lot more kind of outdoors work that, that required labor in those days. But it kind of is as the, the, the labor, labor contracting, just the, the accidents of that happened. A lot of the people who started patronizing those businesses were Japanese. And like Nola was saying, it attracted uh, Japanese entrepreneurs who would start opening businesses, again, to cater to the Japanese workers who came. And so it became sort of a, a center of the Japanese community prior to the war. And it wasn't only Japanese. Chinese lived there. There are a number of ethnic groups that lived in that area, and, and they all lay claim to it being a community before the war. After the war, it kind of, as, as the city itself changed, and you, know, you had uh, freeway projects and the whole uh, evolution of, of the suburbs, housing patterns changed, and people eventually you know, moved into the kind of living situations that are common today. And, and then even later than that, uh, people began realizing how valuable that real estate was. And it's become, nowadays, they, that part of the city is almost considered part of the Pearl District. So it, it's really evolved, and it, it will continue to evolve, I'm sure. It is striking how much has changed if you look back at the photographs, if you look at, if you look back at some of the videos that have been taken, too, yeah. and showing that Japantown was once thriving. And there are some places there, if you know where to look, that are remnants from it, yes, but yes. it's a lot different. I know that there are certain places, like we uh, mentioned before, I wanna go into a little more about this, the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. They're actively working to try to keep your history alive. I just wanna know, have you been to it by chance? We, we all have, actually. So we did the, um, the ceremony for the opening of the new museum. From time to time, I have done uh, volunteer work for them. And this goes back, as I, as I say, their prior uh, incarnation as, a, uh, as the Oregon Nikkei Legacy Center. You've mentioned that term Nikkei a couple of times. Could you explain what that means? Uh, Nikkei is, is simply a Japanese word that uh, refers to Japanese living outside of Japan, regardless of citizenship. So... Uh, if you're living in, you know, Canada, France, the United States, and you're Japanese, you're in the UK. What would you say to anyone who is just now learning about the history of uh, various Japan towns, the internment, or anything thereof? What would you most want them to know? You know, my dad owned a grocery store when he was 19. He got married and had my 
brother George. Then came World War II and he had to sell his store, his inventory, his house, his belongings, and then move up to Sacramento because he was trying to evade the internment district. But when he moved up to Sacramento, my mother had me, and then our family was interned to Fresno, as I said before. But all that said, we ended up in Jerome, which is a hellhole of a place in the middle of a desert with reptiles and cold, no cold water, hot water. I mean, there was water, but the facilities were not insulated, no privacy, no childcare, no guards. Guards were all around the post, and it was a miserable place. You know, if you would think that's that's where you want to go for, because you were denied your rights as an individual, and and uh, and that broke no law, then I think that's a sad case, because today when you see that happening, we march, we protest, and we see discrimination all around us, and it keeps going. So how do you how do you factor that in today's today's world? You can't see this right now, but I am, I am nodding with you in agreement tenfold. There's a lot more questions than no answers. When Larry talks about hardships, I just want to throw something out. In the camps in which we were thrown, uh, they had not given much thought as to what was needed. And so we were forced to live in places that had no heat except for the pot-bellied stove, had no facilities like bathrooms. We had open latrines at which we were given with no kind of shelving or, or walls or anything to give you privacy. The same thing in the bathing situation. There was nothing to give anyone ever any privacy. It was just one open room where everybody had to disrobe and do their thing and be content with. So it was, like Larry said, a hellhole. Thank you for sharing that. It's it's so important to hear your stories, to hear your history. So we're going to take this a little bit in a lighter note. Um, do you happen to have any events coming up? And if not um, due to COVID or otherwise, where can our listeners find your music? The, probably the best way to do it is to look up the minidokaswingband.com and you get most of the information from that site including our next performances, which most of our performances have been canceled because of the COVID. We had three gigs lined up in the past two months that have been canceled because of the COVID. So who knows what's going to happen? We don't know. Well, we're rooting for you here over at PRP. We're all over YouTube, too. Yeah, there's a lot on. I forgot about that. And we're going to conclude with a track featuring the lovely and talented vocals of Nola herself. And this is Tuxedo Junction. And Nola, you mentioned to me that you really enjoy singing this song. What makes it so special to you? To me, Tuxedo Junction is just a time for happiness. 
it was a place where you could go to forget all the bad stuff that happened during the day and have a good time. I can't think of a better note to end that on, pun intended. Larry, Nola, Doug, it has been an absolute, uh, well, it's been a really kind of humbling experience speaking with you. Thank you all so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And I really do appreciate hearing your stories and that you're actively working to keep your history alive and thriving. I think Jenna appreciate it very much. Thank you very much, Jenna, for doing this. Thanks, Jenna. You're welcome. I am Jenna D, and this has been a drop-in session with local artist, the Minidoka Swing Band, right here on Portland Radio Project. And now for the moment you've all been waiting for, here's Tuxedo Junction. Now I'm here for Tuxedo.